Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So 1 Peter, so we've been looking at this idea, elect exiles, that's who we are. We're elect, chosen, picked, called by God. That speaks to care and concern. Exiles, we're foreigners, we're strangers, we're living in a world that's not our home. Most of 1 Peter, he's talking about this exile idea. And when we think that, we think people who move from one physical location to another. That is not what's happening here. These guys hadn't moved. They hadn't moved down the street. They've, they've gone from being non-Christians to Christians, Gentiles, and now they're believers. They're, they're following Jesus. They're not pagan anymore. That's the only shift. It's, but it's moved them from being an insider to being an outsider. And that's not easy. And Peter's very direct. He says, y'all are going to experience suffering because of that. And last week we looked and Peter uses Jesus as an, as an encouragement to them. And he says, he suffered and he's your king, and so you're, you're going to suffer. You're in good company. He was vindicated. You will be vindicated. And then he uses Noah. Way back, Genesis 6, one of the, the most, not one of the most wicked time in the history of the world, God preserved this little group of eight. And he's saying to them, this small church, dozens of people probably, no Christian history, it's first generation Christians. And he's saying to them, God was able to preserve those eight in this wicked generation. He can preserve you guys as well. Today, we're gonna look at Jesus not as encouragement, but Jesus as example. So again, keep in your mind, these guys are exiles, but they haven't moved. They've just gone from being insiders to being outsiders in their hometowns, and they're experiencing suffering. Peter says this, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So there's one command, that's it, just one command in these six verses. Be armed with the same attitude, the same perspective, the same point of view, the same intention that Jesus had when he faced suffering. To be armed, that's a military word. You can think about taking up weapons. Take up the same weapons in, as you face suffering that Jesus took up when he faced suffering. We'll circle back to that in a minute. Peter gives two reasons why we should follow Jesus's example. The first one, he says, those who suffer in the body are done with sin. And if, if, for those of you who are Christians, you may be going, what, what? I still sin. I've been walking with Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I'm still sinning. What does he mean? If we suffer in the body, we're done with sin. That is literally, we stop sinning. We cease sinning. Here's what I think's going on. I think Peter's talking really specifically to these congregations. He's trying to encourage them, remember, and what he's saying to these, again, small fledgling, fledgling congregations who are living in a sea of paganism. What he's saying to them is, you guys are suffering because of this. Y'all are, are being persecuted. You've made a shift 
from following these Roman gods to following Jesus. And there's a corresponding shift in your lifestyle, and that's resulting in persecution for you. You're suffering in your body, not just physical persecution, but you're suffering in this earthly life that we're living. Your day-to-day life, you're suffering, and that's evidence of the fact that you actually have stopped sinning. And then he lists some six very specific sins. He creates this contrast and says, there's two ways of living. You're either following evil human desires or you're following the will of God. To to live to the will of God, that's another way of saying live a good life. We've looked at that repeatedly. That's a phrase Peter uses. It's to be holy, another phrase that Peter uses. It's different ways of saying the same thing. You, You can either follow Jesus or you can follow your own evil human desires. That's it. Those are the only two choices. You used to do this. You spent enough time following evil human desires and then he lists them. Several of those sins have to do with sexual immorality. That's orgies and lust. Several of those sins have to do with excess drinking, drunkenness, and carousing. The umbrella for all that's a word, debauchery. That's not a word that we use often. It's a life without restraint, a life without boundaries. Peter describes this former way of life. He says it's wild and reckless. The image there is a flood of self-indulgent excess. He says that's what it used to be for you. But it's not anymore. It's not anymore. You're not engaging in those practices. Why? He puts the the context for all of that behavior. Those sins that he picked, they're not random. They're all tied together, not just because excess drinking and sexual immorality go together. That's still the case. But because the, the context for all of that, he says, is detestable idolatry. These guys have gone. These were not Jewish converts to Christianity. These are Gentile converts to Christianity. Prior to following Jesus, they were following the, the Roman gods, and there were many of them. For Romans, religion was intimately woven into their life. You worshipped these gods, whatever your god was, you worshipped in your home. Whatever professional association you were connected to whatever your job was, that trade or that, that guild, there was worship of the God of that thing. And then you had public worship, festivals and feasts. There are temples everywhere. We think of religion as private. It's not. It's personal. It's not private. But for a Roman, religion was very public. It was very much intertwined with what it meant to be a Roman citizen, worshiping these gods. That was part of what it meant to be a Roman. It was part of your civic life, your public life. And so when these guys, Peter's 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 people, now they're following Jesus, they're no longer engaging in these behaviors. They're not worshiping these gods, so they're not getting drunk. They're not engaging in these wild parties under the umbrella of worship. They're not doing any of that. And their neighbors, remember, they haven't moved. These are people they grew up with. Their neighbors are looking at them, and they're surprised. They're shocked by this new turn of events. Who are you? What, why aren't you doing this anymore? This, and it's not just socially. Again, this is part of what it means to be a Roman. You're, you're, not, you're not being a good citizen anymore. You're not being a good fill-in-the-blank worker anymore. What, what are you doing? And they're heaping abuse. They're ruining their reputation, defaming them. They're experiencing persecution because they've stopped sinning. They're going to continue to sin. The the theological word is sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus over time. The idea is that as we follow him, we sin less frequently. That absolutely should be the case. 
None of us are gonna be sinless before we die. That's not what Peter's saying. He's not saying you've suffered in the body, therefore you're sinless. I think he's talking about these very specific things around idol worship and saying, you're not doing that anymore. You've stopped doing all of that. You're not carousing anymore. You've stopped all of that and you're being persecuted. Your persecution, that's, that, that's evidence of the fact that you've stopped these sins. Does that make sense? So in that sense, he's saying, hey, Here's, here's a reason why you should follow Jesus' example. It, it's evidence of the fact that you're actually doing that. The persecution that you face, that's evidence of the fact that you've stopped sinning. And then he says the second reason is because there's gonna be a judgment and everybody's gonna face it. That's verse five and six. These guys who are giving you a hard time, these guys who are persecuting you, who are demeaning you, or heaping abuse on you, they're gonna have to stand before Jesus and explain themselves. They're gonna have to give an account to him of not just why they treated you that way, but why they rejected him also. And then he goes further and says, and, and all of you believers, you're gonna stand before him as well. That's part of the good news of the kingdom is that when we stand before Jesus, we're not standing on our own. He's, I, I think maybe what's going on, you've got these neighbors and they're looking at these Christians and they're saying, why are you following this new God, Jesus? It doesn't seem like he's making your life any better. It seems like he's making it worse. And y'all are dying just like we're dying. Like what's the, what's the benefit here? Like what exactly is, what's going on? It doesn't seem to make this life better. And again, you're still, you're still dying just like the rest of us. And that's when Peter is saying, this is a New Testament thread. You can't just look at this life. Those Christians who are dead, those who are now dead, the gospel that they believed, it's paying off for them now after death. They were judged according to human standards in this world, and we all will be. That's just, that's it. Your life will be judged by others based on the standards of this world, period, dot, the end. Yeah. Yes, we can. Okay. Father, we pray for whatever this situation is going on. Uh, we're grateful that you're a God who heals, and we pray that you would do that. We're thankful for the medical professionals who are here and who will be attending, and we pray your grace and your anointing upon them to do their, their job. And we pray for this person and for their family. We pray for peace in their hearts and their minds, and we pray for a complete restoration of their bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dan. All right, so we've got this, we're thinking about um, Jesus as our example. Why do we need to follow his example? One, because we suffer in our bodies, we're done with sin. Two, because we're gonna have to face judgment, everybody, Christian or not. If you, if you are a Christian, the good news for you is you're not standing on your own when you're facing Jesus. And the good news is this life is not all that there is for you. It, it, you know, if this is a game, our, this life, is, it's not even the first quarter, compared to eternity. And again, that's a theme that runs throughout the, old, the New Testament is you can't just look at what's going on here. You may be judged according to human standards in this life, but when you're standing before Jesus, it's a different standard. And there's a reward for those who are faithful to him. And that reward is eternal. So what does that look like for us? There's only one command, arm yourself with the same attitude that Jesus had. So, okay, well, what was his attitude when he faced 
suffering. You see this particularly on Good Friday, from the moment of his arrest to the moment that he died, he's facing intense persecution. He's, he's suffering, and that suffering is associated with persecution. I think the umbrella is really important. Jesus is not suffering. He's not, he's not engaging in, he, he's not pursuing suffering. There's no, I, I, don't, I don't see value in that in the New Testament. There's suffering that results from obedience to the Father, and that's what we see in Jesus' life. He talks about the cup. That's, another, that's his destiny or his purpose. That's the cross. He talks about the Father's will for him. So the Father's will for him is to die, and that, that entails persecution and, and suffering. It's the, the persecution and the suffering, it's, it's not the end, it's just a byproduct of the end. The end is obedience. That's important to keep in mind. And so we have when, what we see from Jesus from, from the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays all the way through to when he says it's finished on the cross. We see the way he responds to suffering. And you can say he either accepts it or he embraces it, whichever word you like better. Ultimately, they kind of land in the same spot. We don't see him bucking that. When it comes, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. Like a sheep before it shears is silent, Jesus did not open his mouth. He's, it's amazing to Pilate, to Herod, the Jewish leadership. They're going, why, why aren't you responding to these accusations? And he never does. He doesn't fight back. When he's arrested and Peter pulls out a sword and says, you want us to fight? And he says, no. I could call on my father and he'd send 12 legion of angels to protect me. That's not, that's not what we're doing. He doesn't retaliate. When he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't get angry at God. That's a big deal. When you feel like you're suffering out of obedience, suffering for doing good, it can be very easy to become bitter at the Lord. And Jesus doesn't. Even after he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. There's, a, there's an acceptance or an embracing of suffering. When you think about what Jesus experienced, he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was deserted, he was falsely accused, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was wrongly convicted and wrongly killed. That's a long list. And in the face of all of that, he said yes, not for its own sake, but for the joy set before him, what Hebrew says, out of obedience to his father. Now, where we live, that's not us. That's not our life. We're not gonna experience suffering associated with persecution in the United States that I can see. There are other places in the world where that's happening right now, where people are experiencing persecution because of their relationship with Jesus and they're suffering physically. He's a great example. Here's how you walk through that. Now, I do think this could be true for some of you similar to Peter's congregations. For some of you, depending on when you become a Christian and, and what that looks like and what your, your growth in holiness looks like, there'll be lifestyle changes along the way. And those lifestyle changes may put you at odds, we'll just say with your peer group. There may be practices and behaviors that you begin to shed and other people will be surprised. Just like Peter's, the neighbors of Peter's congregation. What are you doing? They're astonished. What is this new thing? Who is this new person? I don't like him. And that may be the experience for some of you. Take one of Peter's sins that he lists, drunkenness. That's a big issue in our community. Alcohol and how much people drink. You become a Christian or maybe as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, there's conviction there. I drink too much. I drink to excess. 
I'm, I'm under the influence of alcohol too often. And so you begin to change your patterns. You start drinking less often and you drink less intensely when you drink. And your buddies maybe go, we don't like the new you. You feel pressure. Maybe you get ostracized at some point. You quit getting invited to do things. That's not being crucified. It's not. But that, for us, that, that's, there's, there's some suffering there. Relationally, emotionally, as you shift your lifestyle, that can happen. So I think that, and that's legitimate. I don't want to demean that. That's legitimate. That's what Peter's talking about with his congregation. You're following Jesus now, so that's impacted the life you're living, your lifestyle, and your neighbors, your friends are saying, we don't like it. And they're heaping abuse on you. And that may be where you're standing, and Jesus is a great example. This may be a stretch. I want you to try to follow me with this. This may be a stretch, but I I think it's true. I think it's a legitimate way of understanding this. There's also another kind of suffering, not suffering associated with persecution, whether that's the physical persecution that Jesus experienced or that more kind of emotional, reputational, uh, relational persecution of uh, change in lifestyle. There's suffering that's associated with self-denial. And I think that's for all of us. We're all called to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And self-denial kind of by definition will result in some level of suffering. Again, it's not suffering for its own sake. It's self-denial. It's not even self-denial for its own sake. It's self-denial denying ourselves for the sake of growing in dependence and intimacy with the Father. And we see this in Jesus. We see this at the beginning of his ministry, 40 days in the wilderness. He didn't eat for 40 days. Anybody? No, no fun. He was God, yes, and he was a man. He experienced the same thing you would experience if you didn't eat for 40 days. The weakness, the lethargy, the hunger and the, the, the pain, all of, he experienced all of that. We see him repeatedly getting up early to pray, praying all night. Again, that's, that maybe those things are, it, it's not the same as being beaten and Tortured, it's suffering with a little s. It's self-denial with the byproduct of that self-denial being some little s sufferings. But it's legit and it's real. And it's, again, I think that's something for all of us we're gonna have to embrace. We're all called to deny ourselves and take up our cross. The, the issue for most of us, and I won't speak for everybody, the issue for most of us is our self-denial muscles are really weak. We live in a, age in a place where you can have anything you want delivered to your door in two days. You can have a car delivered to your house. You don't have to get out of the chair and you can buy a car. I'm 48. That was not, that was not the way we bought cars. I don't trust it, which tells you how old I am. We get upset if something from China takes more than a week to get here. From China. And we get impatient. High income, we all have it. High access, we all have it. That can contribute to high levels of self-indulgence. I'm not throwing away my phone. I'm not canceling my Amazon Prime account. 
but I need to recognize what those things do to my heart and my soul. High income, high access, that can lead to a high level of self-indulgence. And so there have to be ways that we're intentionally denying ourselves. That muscle, our culture does not, our, our lives do not put us in positions where those muscles are ever exercised. Our self-denial muscles. Our self-indulgent muscles, those are, we're good at, we're strong. We're really good at that. And in the name of freedom in Christ and we live in grace, we can spiritualize just about anything we wanna do. Here's the thing, if we don't practice self-denial and the suffering associated with that, there's no way, no way we would ever be ready for the suffering associated with persecution. The first time Jesus prayed was not in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating blood. That was not his first rodeo. He had spent years developing trust with the Father. So then in that moment, that dark, dark, dark moment, he had something to draw on. He had a foundation laid. So I wanna be careful here. I don't want to guilt you. I don't wanna heap burdens on you and not lift a finger to carry them. And I, and I want to encourage you to intentionally practice self-denial, not for its own sake, but for the sake of growing in dependence and intimacy with the Father. Three things. These are disciplines or practices, you all know them. Reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, and fasting. We see these in Jesus' life. And they, I'm not, these aren't random. We see them in his life. Think about him in the wilderness. When the enemy tempts him, what does he come back with? Scripture. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy three times. Jesus did not have the book of Deuteronomy on him. He had it in him, and that's not the same thing. Deuteronomy's on a scroll in a synagogue. He's not carrying it around. That's how, that's how deeply formed he's been by that book, that in that moment, after 40 days of not eating, when he's being tempted by Satan himself, the best at tempting, what comes out of him? Three passages from Deuteronomy, exactly what needs to be said in the moment. That's not because he's God. He is, but that's not where that came from. That came because he studied the word. We, at least from 12 years old, we see him in the temple at 12. That, that's available to you and to me. The word forming us and shaping us. Prayer, again, his prayer in Gethsemane, that's not the first time he's prayed. He spends time with the Father, developing trust, establishing relationship. The average Christian prays two to four minutes a day, which is way better than zero to one minute. But think about if you're only spending two minutes a day with somebody, how deep is the water? Probably not very. Don't hear that as guilt, but just invitation. There's more. If you're spending time in the word, if you're spending time in prayer, then you're not spending time doing something else. That is a sacrifice. It's small s sacrifice. It's small s self, or small s self denial. It's small s, small s, that's, I can't say that, small s suffering. But it's real for us. All of that's real. There's, multitasking is a myth. You've got this much attention and you can divide it into one thing or multi, many things. If the only time you can pray is in the car, that's better than never praying. I would say, what does it look like for you to cultivate some space? 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour at some point. 
Remember last year we did that four hours alone with God and I said that and somebody, no way. And then you did it and you loved it. Because he's, he's alive, he's active, he meets with us. What does it look like for you in prayer? Fasting, that's the reason we start every year with fasting. It's the most tangible way we can deny ourselves, that we can say no to our appetites. We don't wanna be driven by our appetites and desires. It's not that they're all wicked, but we don't wanna be mastered by them. We don't wanna be controlled by them. You don't, you don't eat food, you don't eat a meal, you don't eat for a day or two. That's self-denial. Again, little s. They're suffering. It's little s. But it's real for us. What would it look like for you to begin to cultivate that in your own life? The word and prayer and fasting. As you experience the suffering associated with those levels of self-denial, not for their own sake, but for the sake of growing in intimacy and dependence with the Father, what that does is it sets the table for you. It sets the stage. It plants the roots it lays a foundation so that if there is ever a time where you experience suffering that's associated with persecution, you can stand firm. Those are not the moments when you're being squeezed externally. Those are not the moments where, you wanna, where, where, where you're gonna rise to the occasion if you haven't been developing that relationship over time, the foundation is just not gonna be there. And again, don't hear that as a threat or some kind of doomsday deal. It's just reality, and it's a reality most of us are never gonna face. But what we can do now is we can cultivate. I can deny myself, I can take up my cross, I can follow him. I can say intimacy and dependence on the Father is worth this little s suffering. That's just a byproduct. I don't I'm not focused on that, not getting not pats on the back, I'm not keeping score. What I'm doing is I'm saying no to my flesh in order to say yes to him. I'm staying up a little later, I'm getting up a little earlier, I'm giving up a little sleep, I'm giving up some food, whatever that is in order to deny myself and be more with him. Let's pray. Hold on, I'm gonna try to check this real quick. Somebody said something about this person. Okay, the person who, the medical emergency, they're all okay. So, I hope that makes everybody feel better. Somebody, yeah, she's, she's good, she's good now. So Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that she is okay and that she's alert and we pray that you continue to strengthen her, recover, Restore completely. We're thankful that you're a good father. I pray for us in this room. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us, guide us. Lots of different ways that we can go here. And my desire for everyone in the room is first, that you would stir a hunger in us deeper level of intimacy and dependence. That would be a desire in our hearts. If that for you, if that's not, if that's not a thing, I would encourage you just to ask God, say, God, I pray you'd stir a hunger in me that only you can satisfy. Just ask him, he'll do it. God, stir a hunger in me that only you can satisfy.
And then kind of coming off of that, I would say maybe identify one of those three spiritual practices. Bible, prayer, fasting. Is there one of them and you're thinking that's, 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 that's not a tool in my tool belt? And as I pray through these, whichever one is you, just grab onto it and make this prayer your own if you're willing. God, for me, the Bible, it's dry. It's difficult to understand. It feels foreign and honestly irrelevant. God, would you help me? Holy Spirit, would you guide me into the truth of the word? Would you give me not just a mind to understand, but a heart to understand? I pray that I would hear your voice through your word, that I would, I would recognize out of all the things you could have said, and out of all the, the episodes you could have recorded, is this. And I would recognize the treasure. I pray that I would be formed and shaped by the word, that you'd be planting it, not just in my mind, but in my heart. If it's prayer, God, prayer for me, it's, it's not easy. I'm so easily distracted. It's hard for me to find the time. I feel like I'm just, I'm kind of talking to nobody. I don't even know what to say. It's embarrassing. God, would you help me? Would you begin to draw me to yourself? Would, Would you help me to recognize prayer as conversation? Would you help me to hear what you're saying to me not just be focused on what I'm saying to you. God, I pray that I would connect to you in prayer relationally, just like I do in my other relationships. Would you teach me how to pray? If it's fasting, God, I I, I don't even want to. I like what I like. I pray that you would Speak to me. I, I, I do want to be careful here on fasting. Some of you don't need to do it. You have, you struggle with disordered eating or you have a medical condition. So th- there, there are other ways of developing that self-denial muscle apart from fasting. So don't feel pressure if it's not the wisest thing for you to do. And for the rest of you, I would encourage you, just pray along with this. God, what does it look like for me to incorporate uh, a practice of fasting into my life? How do I do that in a way that it doesn't become a legalism. I don't want to be ruled by my desires. I don't. I don't want to be driven by my appetites. I want to be led by your spirit in all things. So just show me what that looks like. And, and, and here's a prayer for all of us. God, I'm, I'm grateful that we don't have to do any of this stuff on our own. That the resources of heaven have been given to us through the Holy Spirit. The very one that raised Jesus from the dead lives in our hearts. And so... We don't don't have to try to make ourselves in any of these areas. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would yield and submit to you. We would know the joy of your power working through us. I do want to pray if there are any here who are feeling squeezed today, would you give them grace? Would you give them grace? And I also want to pray if there's any who've been cut out of relationships or feeling lonely We pray that you would place them in community and they would know the joy of brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 